Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 32 of Jointly Venturing Let's Talk World Citizenship. And today, it's the early part of September in in 2020. Um, we're still mired in the, the COVID crisis globally, and, you know, we'll dedicate this whole episode to both, you know, survivors of COVID-19, people who are still grappling with it, um, to all the families that suffered losses as a result of uh, the tragic approaching one million deaths um, associated with COVID-19, and keep all of those people um, in our thoughts, and also to the people that are enduring various forms of lockdown, including here um, in the state of Victoria and Australia, but globally, um, in particular, the, the hundreds of thousands of people in Victoria and, and the millions across the world who are living alone um, during this already um, very lonely time. So we're thinking about you, everyone, and um, hope, of course, that all of us get through this as soon as possible and we're able to return to some semblance of how life was before. And with COVID and so many other things happening in the world today, it's yet another uh, piece of evidence that the human race is indeed totally interconnected and interrelated with everyone else, that no person, no man, no woman is an island, to quote from the famous book in the past, and that all of us are in this together. There's not a virtually no place on all of planet Earth today where COVID-19 is not present. And one year ago, it was present nowhere, and now it's present everywhere. And millions upon millions of people have been affected by this. And that should, if anything, um, help all of us to understand that we are really and truly one human family. And for some people, it's, it starts almost at birth, this realization that, that we are indeed, as humans, very fragile humans, um, part of one gigantic eight billion person strong enterprise that forms into one human family. After all, we're 99% of the same DNA as everyone else. So the basic building blocks, the basic structures of everything that we are as humans is essentially the same. And it's these just minute little tweaks here and there that create some sort of superficial difference, but at our core, ultimately, we're all the same. And yet, we continue to pretend that we're different, that we justifiably can divide ourselves into different nation states that are somehow different than all the other nation states. And the entire system that we have, the economic, social, political, all other systems, are really predicated on this idea of difference uh, rather than the idea of similarity. And for some people... It is indeed something that starts at a young age and and becomes deeper and deeper as, as life goes on. Other people figure it out much later in life. Um, and unfortunately, I would say, for the vast majority of people, they still haven't figured it out yet. And they continue to operate as if we are different um, at our core and that we can't get along with people from other religious groups and beliefs or other ethnic groups or other political belief groups or whatever the distinctions may be but in fact we can and the deeper one gets into this state of being this understanding 
of how the world truly is and has at least some semblance of a grasp of world-centric consciousness, um, it behooves all of us to begin considering what might we be able to do in order to come closer to this level of understanding of how the world truly uh, works and exists, and how do we then, of course, bring about concrete changes that allow us to live within systems that are predicated on our similarities rather than our differences. And most certainly one of those practices, one of those processes is the practice of, of meditation, the ancient, ancient practice of meditation, something that's been with us for thousands of years, um, something that can be practiced by every single human on earth, no matter how old or how young or how rich or how poor. Everybody can meditate. And one of the amazing things about meditation, I mean, luckily for me, um, I've known about meditation and, and practiced meditation uh, for decades now, um, obviously sometimes more intensively than others. Um, but one of the common traits of all forms of meditation practiced by whatever person who is practicing it, slowly but surely over time, is the disillusion of boundaries and borders and the merger of our own minds, our own consciousness with ever-increasing, ever-enlarging ever semblances of space and time and understanding. And I think one of the most remarkable things about meditation is that if a, a Korean starts meditating today and somebody from South Africa starts meditating today and somebody from Canada starts meditating today and everyone else starts meditating today, what they will experience sooner or later is exactly the same thing, notwithstanding any other distinctions that may exist. They will end up in the very same place, which is an extremely profound thing to understand and, and really contemplate. So today's guests were super excited to have with us um, meditation teacher and practitioner um, Ayal Lang is speaking to us today from lockdown in Melbourne. So welcome to Jointly Venturing, Al. Thank you, Scott. Beautiful opening. Thank you. Thank you. So what, what got you, like, you know, most people start their lives not meditating and then for some reason they start meditating the ones that do what what what's your journey how did you get to be so interested in this practice mm. so it was about six or seven years ago in 2014 um i was having a pretty difficult year i had broken up with my first partner mm -hmm. a woman i loved very very deeply uh felt like a cosmic love but she lived in Sydney and I lived in Melbourne. And so we felt like our relationship couldn't move forward because of the distance. Mm -hmm. And so my heart was shattered. Mm -hmm. And then there was uh, a few challenges happening in my family. There was some tension. Um, I was living at home at the time. And, and through all these different experiences, through all these challenges, uh, my mind was incredibly chaotic. My mind was incredibly disorganized. I would uh, think of, uh, obsessively. Um, I would be emotionally reactive mm -hmm. and I didn't, I didn't really know what to do. 
But I had this little voice in the back of my mind that was telling me, hey, Al, you should meditate. You should meditate. And mm -hmm. it took me about six months to really listen to that voice until eventually it became so strong and so loud that I went to my first sit at the Buddhist Society of Victoria in Malvern on a Wednesday night. And at this stage of my life, I was a bit skeptical about meditation. I was a bit skeptical about, uh, to me, it was a bit of a hippie practice mm -hmm. in 2014. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I arrived at the center, went, went to my first sit. Uh, it was a half an hour sit. Um, and in that half an hour sit, all the disorganization of my mind and all the obsessive overthinking was amplified for 29 minutes mm -hmm. and 55 seconds of that sit. <laughs> but I had five... <laughs> But I had five seconds of peace for the right. first time in probably many months or many years. Mm -hmm. And that five seconds was enough for me to realize I could, like, there's something to this. There's really something to this. Like, uh, I feel that although it was only the five seconds, if I come back and do this again, maybe it'll be 10 seconds. Maybe it'll be 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. And so the following week I went back and what happened was I experienced a longer stint of inner peace. And my, my life was still very chaotic at the time and my mind was still very chaotic at the time. And these moments I was having on the meditation cushion for the first time in my life, uh, sitting for the first time in my life, uh, I experienced deep peace amongst all this chaos. And it was those seeds that were planted have, I suppose, brought me to where I am today. So how would you describe Seven. the deep peace that you were experiencing? How, how would, how would a, a listener um, relate to that even more? What does that mean? So the peace when I was sitting on the cushion for the first time in 2014, back then, mm -hmm. I'd say the quality of it, well, maybe I should first describe the quality of my mind at the time. Uh -huh. And like I was saying before, it was, uh, I was, I had a tendency to obsessively overthink. I would go through thought patterns and, and loops um, there was a lot of uh, discomfort and emotional reacti and reactivity in my body and I had a lot of emotional reactivity to experiences or people in my life. And that five or ten seconds felt like everything in my mind and body slowed down uh, and there, there was a, a calmness and a stillness in my body and in my mind that was new to me. And it was a taste. It was right, a taste of, right. a, of a moment. And that taste, um, it, it's always right here. That piece is always right here. It's just clouded over by all the layers of the thought and all the layers of the reactivity. And so in that first sit, I was able to just tap into it and taste it for a moment. Um, and, yeah. And it tasted pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so, ta so tasty so tasty you just wanted more kept going right <laughs> kept going back for more for seven, yeah. for seven years yeah because yeah. you know a lot of people um are are really reluctant to you know there's a lot of stigma still even now i would say meditation is probably more well known more widely understood in in the western world um than ever before um, and yet still, um, there's all sorts of, you know, baggage that comes with it, right? For a lot of people, like you said, you know, it yeah. se seems to be sort of a hippie pastime or some left-wing yoga weirdo 
thing to do um, or something associated with the 60s or, or whatever it may be or wearing gowns and robes and, and becoming a monk and isolating yourself away from the rest of the world and so on and so on. Um, so how do we help people get past that sort of initial image? I think that's a really, you know, important question because, you know, in my personal view, um, as with so many things in life that one can experience, if you, if you go through your entire life, never, ever having meditated and felt that sense of serenity that you just mentioned, and also that sense of, um, of kind of calm, insight um, and understanding and, and selflessness really in, at the end of the day, that sense that one's own, you know, individual self is absolutely at the end of the day, non-existent. Um, There is no individual self. And then obviously you get more deeply into it and start exploring questions of um, emptiness as is, you know, fundamental tenet of, of Buddhism and trying to get one's mind mm. around what emptiness actually means. And then the Heart Sutra, of course, in the Pali Canon, the very famous line of, you know, emptiness is form and form is emptiness. And then trying to mm. understand that, um, but from an experiential angle. And on and on the, the, the story goes. But really, to me, um, not ever meditating would be the equivalent to not ever eating something that tasted delicious or never having seen, you know, been able to walk through a pristine forest or never having jumped into the waves of the ocean or never having felt love or given love or all these really, really fundamental elements of what it means to be human, you know? And so, you know, I'm always urging in whatever way I can, people who are reluctant to do it or not interested in doing it to actually at least give it a try and not at all from a religious perspective or ideological perspective, but just to, you know, see what it's like to simply do nothing, basically simply sit and watch, watch what happens and watch your thoughts. Mm. Cause most people aren't even aware of their thoughts. And when you start being conscious of your thoughts and you just see them as clouds passing in a, in a windy sky across your consciousness and you just let them go and you take note of them and you let them go and then comes a period of no thoughts, that's when you can start delving ever more deeply into the, you know, the, the realms of, of peace and, and serenity and in a way um, timelessness and formlessness and purposelessness and the void, the nothingness of the emptiness that is found in the midst of the void that we all visit when we are deeply in meditative thought. Mm. Beautifully said. Thanks. Um, so how do we get more? So, Cause I really believe that's one of those things. If, if we had more people meditating um, in whatever, whatever pathway they choose to do this with, Ultimately, we would have a better world. <laughs> Simple as that. Very few violent yeah. meditators, you know? There's very few hateful meditators. I've never come across any. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. In my time. Yeah. 
So uh, there's a neuroscientist named Sam Harris uh, who also practices in a similar lineage to what I practice in Zodchen. And he says that uh, the mind is the basis of everything you experience in life and the basis of every contribution you can make to the lives of others. Mm -hmm. And given this fact, you, you might as well train it, understand it first and then train it and then I would say organize it thirdly. Right. Um, and uh, what that means is that all your experiences or like your experiences with people, or your experiences at work, that's all interpreted through the mind. Right. And, and interestingly, there's a psychologist, her name is Barbara Friedrichsen. She, uh, she essentially, she won the Templeton award for positive psychology, mm-hmm. um, which is the equivalent to like the Nobel prize of psychology. And she did a study and uh, five different studies and what she uh, she did a study about uh, positive psychology and what she discovered is that in her study was that the average person experiences five negative states to one positive state in a day wow really yeah. in, the, in, in the western world yeah. or everywhere or one country or where yeah. is it where in 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 the western world yeah right and and uh, one of the core tenets of a meditation practice is to reduce negative states and increase positive states. Mm-hmm. Right, and so as right. you train your mind and you start, as you start to understand your mind and you start to train it, one of the byproducts of of the experience is that you start to increase the positive states. So, what are the positive states? You start to experience more peace and more joy, and more compassion towards others. Those are the qualities that naturally emerge through the practice. Right. And yeah, and and at the start of the practice that I do, we always say that um, may the practice eventually lead to a reduction in negative states and a flourishing of positive states of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's not just for the benefit of you, but it's for the benefit of all beings. Right. So you sort of you the, set, the bodhisattva ideal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You're setting that intention to awaken for the benefit of all beings and to reduce your negative states and increase your positive states, not just for you, but for everyone. What about for these people that um, are, you know, reluct- the reluctant um, uh, majority probably who chooses not to meditate for fear of what they will encounter within the depths mm. of their own consciousness? Because I think it's important to put out there the, um, you know, the understanding that you know, in or you know, human beings are essentially evolutionary machines. You know, we have the potential to evolve immensely beyond where we currently are, and we have the capacity mm-hmm. with our incredible brains um, and souls, maybe, and spirit, maybe, and whatever else you want to call it, but particularly our brains um, to grow and evolve and and understand and have greater um, and more and more enriched and deeper understandings of the world as time goes on and doing certain practices such as meditation can really, you know, help us towards those evolutionary objectives. Um, However, many Westerners, I believe in particular, um, because this is still relatively new in the Western world, um, meditation generally is perceived to have evolved from Asia um, from you know Tibetan areas and from uh, Indian and 
Hindu areas and and a, a range of other places in in Asia over the years, and of course, you know, Japan for Zen and other other places where meditation is part of the religious practice in in those places. And there is a very often a big disconnect between. Um, let's say, ordinary Western-style Freudian psychotherapy and the types of issues that, that those undertakings address and what goes on in the minds of people who meditate. And so there is, an, I think, an increasing understanding globally um, that you can't really just do one or the other. You have to sort of do both. And that, in, mm. in, in my view, unless you do the, the initial groundwork, foundational work with traditional psychotherapy in whatever form it may take. Um, and one can do this on their own or one can do it with therapists or one can do it in group therapy, whatever it may be. That's almost a prerequisite to, to really getting the most out of meditation. Cause I think meditation, you will eventually hit a wall. Um, if you haven't really dealt with, um, a number of those underlying deep, um, issues that every single person in the world has, um, that can be grappled with quite effectively with ordinary, um, you know, psychotherapy. So maybe talk a little bit about that and the relationship between, you know, traditional psychotherapeutic practices and um, the meditative path and how they relate to one another. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting question. So, in the East, in the monasteries in the East, in Tibet, for example, before you you start meditating, you do what's called 100,000 prostrations. Mm -hmm. But uh, they're essentially repeating the same uh, actions and same movements 100,000 times. Right. Right. Uh, but we don't have an equivalent in the West. Um, but the closest thing that we do have is psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And so they say, according to my meditation teacher, senior meditation master and professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School, Dan Brown, mm -hmm. he says that uh, it's for for people to start the meditation path, it's it's beneficial for them to spend a year or two in psychotherapy right. to understand the structures of their self, mm -hmm. right? So right. you talked about fear before. So they're able to identify the fear in their body and in their mind uh, before they move into the meditation practice. The the problem with people who go straight into meditation is that all the limiting beliefs and all the fears that they have, once they get onto the cushion, amplify on the cushion. So right. the, the psychotherapy really does complement the meditation practice and it sets a strong foundation. It's the equivalent to those 100,000 prostrations that they do in the East. So right. I think you're right. Like They, they would really complement each other and benefit each other meditation and psychotherapy yeah together. very true you know it reminds me of um of this story you know i lived in um and worked in asia for many many years and um mostly living in thailand and um a friend of mine was like having a really hard time um uh you know psychologically and they looked everywhere to find a, a you know therapist like you could find 20 million in New York City alone, right? You know, or Buenos Aires, also in a really famous place where people do psychotherapy. And my friend, he couldn't find any in uh, Thailand, none. And that just like, 
I was like, are you kidding? You can't find any? You know, and they said, no. I mean, they found like maybe one at a hospital that was doing it really for kind of severe mental Ill, mental illness kind of stuff, right? But not your basic run-of-the-mill um, psychotherapists. And then that really got me thinking, and I started asking around. And it's exactly what you just said. You know, the, there are so many other ways to achieve the same thing um, in, for instance, a, a Buddhist society that sort of precludes the need for the type of psychotherapy that's so prevalent in the West, you know? And we could learn a mm. lot uh, as Westerners from the way they do it. They're not perfect either. They, they haven't worked everything out either. And there's all sorts of problems in, in the countries where, you know, Buddhism is prevalent um, or Hinduism for that matter, other meditative religions. Um, but that sense of, um, just bowing to other people, you know, and submitting and respecting um, others from birth virtually um, really changes one's worldview in so many ways. And I think actually helps to, you know, reduce a lot of the things that cause um, trauma in uh, people in the Western world that require uh, psychotherapy in order to actually overcome them as they slowly turn into the direction of, of meditation. And, mm. of course, meditation is, you know, it's a very, very, very broad term. You know, there's a million and one different ways by which people can, in quotes, meditate. Um, and, you know, it's important to remember that there, there are many, many lineages within Buddhism and other, other types and forms and this and that. Um, but it's it's good not to get too distracted by that because at its core, it's all ultimately um, the same. And it's about calming the mind and entering into states of consciousness that are accessible to everyone. You don't have to be rich or poor or anything, everyone, um, where you can experience moments that turn into long moments that may turn into hours, days, years, decades um, of lifetimes, lifetimes into, you know, conceptless states of consciousness, transcendent mm -hmm. states of consciousness, all the while living a normal life, you know, going about your business, driving a car around, going to work, making meals. Um, but the world is perceived in a different way at a deeper mm -hmm. level of, of calmness and, a, and of, you know, compassion and understanding and all of these types of things. And generally, as we talked about nonviolence, um, so it's really something that, that, you know, is really one of the greatest gifts that humans can have access to, in my view, you know, like it's, and it's, it's free. It costs nothing. Anyone can do it anywhere anytime you can do it for five minutes before you fall asleep even you know just laying down in bed you can do it for five hours in the morning if you want you can go on you know multi-week long meditation retreats where you meditate all day long um as i have done and probably you have done um there's all sorts of ways you can do it um and i think that's an important thing to for everybody to remember too it's one of those things that is truly accessible to anyone and um it's a really, really important part of, of life if 
our quest is to continue to evolve and to become mm. more understanding of more people in more places across this one world in which we live. Mm. So how about um, the whole question of obstacles, I think, is really important in understanding meditation, too. So maybe you can explain to listeners um, what what is the process that is likely to be encountered when one starts meditating in terms of those obstacles and how do we address those obstacles and overcome those obstacles and, and why do they appear? <laughs> so some of the main obstacles are motivation. Mm -hmm. um, I think starting any new habit is difficult. For example, I'm trying to get out of bed earlier, but the thoughts that arise when my alarm goes off at seven in the morning, they tell me, oh, it's so comfortable, it's so cozy, it's cold outside, which makes it harder for me to get up earlier. Right. And I think people have the same sort of experience of meditation. It makes it, uh, we, it's hard to start a new habit. It's hard mm -hmm. to, it's hard to, um, it's hard to create change in your body and mind. Um, because we have so many layers of imprinted and conditioned patterns and habits already in us. So to try something new causes discomfort. Right. So you have to have a really strong, you have to have a really strong motivation to begin with. Mm -hmm. And the motivation can be uh, something very broad as you want to awaken, awaken to realize your true nature. Um, and then you want to awaken for yourself and for the benefit of all beings. Or it can be something as simple as you want to learn something new about yourself every day. And when you sit and meditate, you definitely learn something new. Um, but I think having a, motiv a motivation is really important to begin with. And every time you feel like not going to meditate, you like you you come back to that motivation. It's like you have that motivation and stick it on your wall. I, I probably, the beginning of my meditation practice, six or seven years ago, I stuck my motivation on the wall so I would never forget it. Um, mm -hmm. And that was to, yeah, help me uh, organize my mind and help me clear, clear my mind. At that stage of my practice where I was at in the path, I was, my intention was I'm sitting every day so I can clear my mind and, and experience more peace and stillness. And, and that motivation has evolved to where I am now. But yeah, motivation is very, very important to start practice. That's right. Uh, that, and how do you, what do you thing. recommend to people that, um, are initially motivated, um, but then have such high expectations, um, that they meditate every day for two weeks and they, they say, Oh, I'm not enlightened now. I'm not enlightened yet. What's going on? What am I doing wrong? What, <laughs> this sucks. I'm not doing this anymore. You know, what do you say to those guys? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it takes time. It takes time to learn how to ride a bike. It takes time to learn how to surf and to master surfing. We like for anyone who's tried surfing, for example, there's many, many days and many, many weeks of pain and discomfort yeah. that comes with the surfing. Wipeout. But when yeah. you learn to, yeah, absolutely. I, I learned how to surf in Sri Lanka. I spent eight days in a row learning how to surf and only by day seven did I get it. But once I got it on that day seven, it became imprinted in my body and mind. And I've never lost it. It mm -hmm. takes me a bit of time now when I do surf to get back into it, but it leaves an imprint. And so it's it's about persevering. It's about persevering and knowing that you are training yourself in something new and it takes time and being patient with yourself. 
And I think it also does take good instructions, good quality instructions, precise instructions um, make a big difference. Uh, if you're so at the beginning, uh, if you're a beginner meditator or even an intermediate meditator, I think uh, self-guidance is is helpful. But having someone guide you, or having uh, going to Insight Timer, for example, or finding yourself a, a teacher that you can build a relationship with, that makes a really big difference because they can give you exact and precise instructions for where you are in your path, and and steps forward for what you need to do next and that makes a big difference right right and how about the obstacles that people often encounter when they do keep physically doing it um but they never seem to get past a certain point they keep meditating every day diligently for an hour and they never really get very far and they just keep coming up against the same stone wall every single time how do you what do you advise them to do how can you help them to to either keep going yeah. or find a way you know through that wall uh so there's two strategies that are coming to mind the first one is whatever you're struggling with find someone tell them about your struggles a teacher for example and get feedback from them right um and a teacher will be able to ask you questions that can open up uh some of the obstacles or some of the issues um, so you can see them in a new way from a from a new perspective or a new angle and that really makes a big difference mm -hmm. uh, the second one is i recommend journaling after practice mm -hmm. so what journaling does is it helps build your metacognitive awareness and your metacognitive awareness is your ability to reflect on your own experience and when you at the end of a practice say you sit for an hour and you complete your practice, then you write in your journal for, I don't know, five minutes or so after the practice, that that reflective experience helps you take a step back from your meditation and work out what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? What are the same uh, blockages or obstacles that keep arising? Um, and yeah, you can kind of, it's like, you can kind of work out your own way through the path through journaling. Um, but I think journaling combined with with some help from a teacher is is a good is a good solution. Yeah, that's really good, really good advice. And how about the issue of um, the relationship between meditation and and uh, let's say in quote self improvement or self actualization or self realization processes and um, political engagement? Because very often there's sort of a um, there's a big gap between those two. And very often you have meditators who may be very, 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 uh, you know, excellent people, kind people, people who want, you know, to end human suffering. But the last thing they'll ever do is become politically active or politically engaged. And then you have people that are politically active and politically engaged who want the very same thing, who would never, you know, over their dead bodies, would they ever um, become a meditator? And it seems to me that... Um, a merger of those two things, um, you know, the, the self-awareness uh, path, including meditation and the political engagement path, um, really is far preferable than having the, the two things travel parallel with one another and, and, and acting in ways that are totally distinct and sometimes at odds with one another. Got any thoughts on that? Mm. 
Yeah, people have asked me about this, like why I'm not more politically engaged or why I don't, I'm not more uh, vocal on social media. Um, I've been called passive a lot. And I think uh, every, every meditator will have a different approach, right? Some meditators will be more politically active and some, some might not be. I think it's, it's, it comes down to your intention really. Mm-hmm. So my intention at the moment is uh, with everyone in my life, I'm doing the very best I can to show up with non-judgment, not like not shaming them and holding a space of deep compassion and love so they can heal. And that have a, that has a ripple effect throughout their life. Mm-hmm. So the people around, for example, my housemates, uh, I've started to see a ripple effect where they are holding space for their mom and their dad differently. Right. right. And so, and so it, I think you can have an impact in different ways. And my intention at the moment is doing the best that I can with the people around me in my life. And maybe it will grow into uh, more political, being more political and more vocal. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it really comes down to the person, it depends on the person. And for the politicians or people who are really active but might not meditate, I think what, what I see a lot in these kind of communities is that there's, uh, there's a lot of passion, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of emotion. And I think being able to harness that passion and harness that emotion or training yourself to harness that through a practice like meditation will make what they're doing even more powerful, even more potent. Mm. Because I think sometimes we can lose, uh, our arguments can lose their substance when we're operating from a place of reactivity or operating from a place of judgment. And what meditation can really do is help one stabilize their emotions and stabilize their reactivity. So they, every time they show up, they're showing up with strength and with uh, with clarity and with really uh, uh, arguments with deep integrity with without judgment and without reactivity and that's I think that would be really potent. Do you think there's any world leader today that is a regular meditator? Would you consider the Dalai Lama to be a world leader? He would be a world leader. <laughs> I think he's a meditator. He's, I think I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my teacher, Dan, used to work with, with uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and his meditation teacher as well, uh, Senior, uh, His Holiness, Menry Treason, the 33rd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, were, they were definitely meditators. Um, no doubt. No of, doubt about that. But um, I mean, like, current terms, leaders with real political power. And the Dalai Lama has lots yeah. of power, but unfortunately, <laughs> his territory is not under his control or his government's control at the moment and hasn't been since 1950. <laughs> I I can't think of any examples, although the feeling quality I get from the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Justin Dahan, kind of makes me feel like maybe there's a little bit of practice. I'm not sure, but meditators can kind of pick out other meditators in a crowd. And I have a yeah, true. That Trish, maybe, I think she, she might too. I don't know. I have no proof that she maybe. does, but she gives no, no. off that that vibe. You know, yeah, but I can't, and, and I so can't does to sure. a degree. So does um, um, Justin Trudeau in Canada. A little yeah, bit. Yeah, he has know? that. He has that calmness in him. I'd say he's got a little bit of a, you know, spark in his eye, and uh, he could. He's yeah. He's he's quite. You know. Um, 
principled but but firm, you know, when he's uh, under pressure. And, you know, he's not a perfect leader either by any stretch. Um, but I do get the sense that he might. And, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe the new, um, I think she's 34-year-old, um, Prime Minister of Finland. She's kind of got a slightly meditative vibe about her too. Mm. But I can certainly name a bunch that don't meditate based on the vibes I feel from them, you know? That would, that, yeah, of course. There's, and, you know, the, I guess the, probably the five most powerful countries in the world, I'm not sure any of the leaders of those countries meditate mm. in the way that we would uh, like it. Um, how about the idea of um, maybe explain to people that have never thought about doing it um, why they might um, consider one day um, attending a meditation retreat and what is it about meditation retreats that um, can really uh, be transformative? Okay. So I think it's first important to understand that there are different styles of retreat out there. Mm -hmm. The most common style that people hear of is Vipassana. Mm -hmm. um, Vipassana, it, it comes from the first turning of the, the wheel in Buddhism, which is the equivalent to a paradigm shift, essentially. Like we've had paradigm shifts in, in Western science and Buddhism has also evolved and Vipassana was part of the first paradigm shift of Buddhism. And some of the core tenets of Vipassana are, are Anicca, impermanence, mm -hmm. um, Anitta, no self, uh, Dukkha, uh, which is translated as suffering, but uh, actually a more modern translation of it is uh, reactivity. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, so those are some of the core tenets of Vipassana, but, uh, and that's a 10 day retreat. And I've, I've done a Vipassana myself in Sri Lanka in 2016 for 10 days. Mm -hmm. And that it's different to a, a different style of meditation that I've, I do now, which is Zogchen practice. And that's an eight day meditation retreat with my teacher, Dan. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I guess I can speak from those two perspectives and the Vipassana is, I think of it as a very, very deep healing practice. So you're essentially spending the first three days, uh, stabilizing the mind with concentration. So clearing up all the, all the noise in the mind and the foreground and the background of the mind mm -hmm. and stabilizing it. And then on day four, you move into an open awareness practice. Uh, so you move from focused attention into open awareness. Mm -hmm. And open awareness is a form of concentration, but instead of having your awareness on, say, the breath, you're opening up your senses and absorbing the information through your senses. Mm -hmm. And so from day four to day 10, you're doing, uh, you're deepening in open awareness each day. And the practice is all about observing your body, uh, the sensations in your body or pain in your body, and kind of, I call it doing mind surgery. You're using your own mind to deeply like, do surgical uh, healing on some impediments in your own body. And from my experience, uh, I, I feel like I healed a lot of old, old patterns of mine and old, um, old habits of mine through doing that and it's 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 it takes time 
and it's an intense practice because you're there for you're meditating for 10 hours a day and i don't necessarily recommend it to everyone but it's an incredible way to really learn about who you are internally how you operate uh how you absorb information through your body and information through your senses through your five senses and and how you interpret that information moment by moment uh and when you sit for 10 days in a row your mind really clears up and you start to have some deep realizations about your past and deep realizations about who you want to become in the future and some deep realizations about the changes you want to make so it can be profoundly transformative uh doing right. the personal trade and but imp- it's not easy <laughs> it's not easy and important and, to and, point out to people that don't know it from personal experience but the uh, i think all the vipassana retreats if not just most of them but i think all uh, are silent so yes not only do you not speak to anyone no one speaks to you but you also have no eye contact with anyone or at least you're not not supposed to you know the naughty ones do it um (laughs) um, by the way (laughs) by the way a bit of advice to people that are listening um you know i've made this mistake once or twice in my life if you do go on a meditation retreat, don't go with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Just go by yourself because <laughs> that distraction is really, really huge and kind of like really detracts from, um, you know, what the process is supposed to supposed to bring. So most certainly in my case. Yeah, so if you do go on a um, either a Vipassana or other um, multi-day meditation retreat, um, you know, I'd highly recommend that you go, um, alone or with a non, uh, you know, uh, relationship, um, person, um, and really delve into it as deeply as you possibly can. You know, there's a lot of people that would hear, you know, how about going on a 10 day retreat in the absolute middle of nowhere, not being able to look at anybody or talk to anybody for 10 days and being forced to meditate and sit quietly for 10 or 12 hours a day and working the rest of the time. And, um, doesn't that sound like a fun holiday? You know, and a lot of people would absolutely not be into that. Right. Um, on the flip side, um, and you know, I have a thousand and one stories I could tell on this and I, I, I'm sure you do too, Al, but, um, I can honestly say that I've, you know, I've done probably, I don't know, 10 or 15 of those throughout my life. Um, and on the really good ones, um, I can definitely assert that the feelings that one has, particularly the last five days, um, are unlike anything else that I've ever experienced, and I've experienced a lot of things um, in the most positive um, sense of that term. And um, even the thought of speaking almost becomes uh, almost like a form of pollution in a way. Like, like not only is it against the rules, but it's like you're going to totally wreck it if you start using words and concepts um, when you're in this state of no speaking and no um, no looking into anyone's eyes. And, um, yeah, I, I had some fantastic experiences with um, retreats in England in the 1980s um, where the feeling lasts for days and then suddenly that feeling kind of slowly fades away. And that's always kind of a bit of a mini trauma, though, <laughs> at the end of these retreats, you know. 
how long can that feeling keep going for? How long can you stay in that state of being um, after the retreat is actually over? And once you re-enter society and go back into the city where you're living or, or the town or whatever, it's not that easy. Um, and it does fade. And that, again, opens up, you know, planning for the next one. So what about you? You got some good stories on retreats? Yeah. So, <laughs> so like I was saying, my first Vipassana was in Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sri Lanka is obviously uh, close to the equator, so the general climate over there is just hot, hot, hot all the hot time, hot and sticky. Yeah. So um, the first three days, uh, there was a lot of reactivity to the heat, and the town outside the retreat center at five a.m. every morning, so five a.m. every morning, the town would go berserk with its traffic and with its sending kids to school and selling fruit and vegetables. And so it was difficult to meditate. But then by day three or day four, you didn't know, I didn't notice the heat. I didn't notice the sounds. I didn't notice the distractions. Uh, I became very much immersed in the experience. It, it it really trains you in non-reactivity, non-reactivity to what's happening in the external world. Right, um, right. I mean, I, I've heard yeah, similar yeah, things yeah, from so friends the, who, who were um, friends of mine who became monks for a while in uh, yeah. in Burma, for instance. You know, um, uh, a friend from Vietnam. He was a monk for like two years, I think, in uh, Yangon, and the monastery was right in the middle of like busy downtown, noisy Yangon. And he thought there's no possible way I can meditate here. Um, and within, you know, a matter of days, all of that stuff was completely absent from his mind. And he just got deeper and deeper and deeper to the point where he said, once I got to the point where I was pretty sure that I saw what Buddha saw, that was time for me to go. And that's what he did. Now mm-hmm. he's a doctor. Very, yeah. very well-known doctor. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's a deep realization. Uh, so I was talking about the first, so the first retreat was Vipassana. The second retreat I was talking about was the Dzogchen, uh, Mahamudra and Dzogchen practices I do with uh, Dan. Those are eight-day-long retreats. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on these a bit because I think it's this is a really interesting form of meditation. Um, so these practices, so the first turning of the wheel was uh, that around Vipassana and then the second turning of the wheel was Mahayana Buddhism. And yeah, so I practice Dzogchen. I've done two retreats with Dan. Um, it's built on top of Mahayana Buddhism, which one of the core principles is emptiness, emptiness practice. Can you explain emptiness to uh, listeners? Let's hear your explanation (laughs) of emptiness. so well, put you, putting you on the spot yeah well even con- all conceptualizations are empty so <laughs> um emptiness is I'll, I'll start with a metaphor yeah and the, meta- the metaphor is that uh awareness or consciousness is like an ocean so uh, i'm an ocean uh, i I'm, I'm an ocean, but I'm also like a wave, right? And what I mean by that is everything from a Tibetan Buddhist perspective is uh, part of this infinite field of experience, infinite ocean of experience, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm a, I'm a wave in that experience, mm-hmm. but a wave 
isn't separate to the ocean. A wave is the ocean, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and the wave, the wave, and the ocean is infinite, boundless, timeless, and it's empty as well. The quality of it is it's it's always empty, and what emerges from that ocean uh, is is form, and that form is me. Uh, and but what you can see here uh, as a illness isn't it's a it's an empty construct of mind. I'm still, I look like I'm a yellow and I'm separate from the ocean, but I am still that ocean of timeless, boundless, empty awareness space. And everything is constantly emerging out of this ocean. And the, the illusion is that we think all these waves that are emerging out of the ocean are separate, but they're not. They're all the waves, you and me and your partner, and everyone listening here are all waves in the ocean, but they are also the ocean. And, and it's that if you break everything in reality down, if you, if you look at your arm, uh, so say, say I'm a wave and Eyal is the wave coming out of the ocean and Eyal thinks he's separate. Well, uh, I've got a mind, a thought experiment for you. Okay. Mm -hmm. So ask yourself, what's your arm made out of? Your arm's made out of uh, skin. What's your skin made out of? Your skin's made out of molecules. What's your mo uh, well, well, what's what are molecules made out of? Cells. What are cells made out of? Atoms. What are uh, atoms made out of? Subatomic particles. What are they made out of? Empty, empty space. Right. Right. And so everything, uh, uh, everything that we see here, everything in in the manifest world is. Is it it looks real, but it, at fundamentally, it's it's still made out of ninety nine point nine nine percent empty space, and that's a perspective from there, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, my understanding is that emptiness emptiness practice is the direct realization of that is that everything is emerging out of this empty, uh, out of this infinite, infinitely empty, boundless, timeless ocean of awareness, consciousness, so to speak. Um, but it's the illusion is that we think it looks real. We think it looks solid. And we don't, we don't realize every single day that it is everything in front of us is empty. So the, the structure of self, the illness I was talking about before, that's all a construct of mind. Underneath it all is, is that, is that ocean like boundless awareness. Right. And that sounds you. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. And then of course that, you know, um, links up with the, the other central tenant of the two other central tenants of Buddhism, I guess. Um, the illusion of separateness, right? The illusion yes, that, that exactly. things are separate from everything else. Uh, when yeah. in fact all is ultimately one. Um, mm -hmm. and it is that, you know, deeper understanding of oneness that, uh, you know, can pervade, uh, the physical realm or the psychological realm or the emotional realm or the, the psycho you know, mental realm, um, spiritual realm, um, mm. that really is ultimate, uh, kind of an ultimate end point really in a certain way. Um, and yeah. then of course the, the, probably the greatest challenge of all for human beings is, um, impermanence, you know, that other core tenet of, of Buddhism, the fact that nothing exists forever. Um, yeah. and the acceptance of that, the deep understanding and acceptance of that and how vital that is to really evolving and growing and how yeah. central that is, of course, to understanding the very notion of 
of emptiness. And, you know, Western religions in particular, Christianity, um, are, are completely grounded in the inability of the believers to accept um, the truth of impermanence. And that's why we have the idea of heaven and hell and why we have cemeteries and why we believe in everlasting life if one believes in the Lord and things of that nature. And, um, and, and that can you know, also be applied to um, other religions, but, but certainly the religion of capitalism um, is predicated immensely mm. on this knowledge of impermanence, but this unbelievable fear of it. Um, that drives people to continue to acquire material things way after they need no more things. They have to keep acquiring. Why people who are wealthy can never stop um, earning more money. They're, there's never enough. And why um, people continually grasp for power and more power uh, over others and, uh, and, and ultimately over the earth. All of that, in my view... Um, can be traced directly back to the inability to accept one's own um, finite nature, one's own impermanence, and thinking that with more possessions and more power and more notori notoriety, more ego stroking, somehow I will last forever. And, you know, I got news mm -hmm. for you, everybody. You ain't going to last forever. And neither is this planet, by the way. No matter how good we treat it, and we treat it as poorly as we possibly can right now as a species, I hate to say, but even if we changed our views and really tried tried to treat it with respect and and understanding as we should, um, Earth is also impermanent, and mm. it's only going to be here for a few billion more years, barring um, you know an, a direct asteroid hit or some other uh, crisis that's unavoidable. Um, Earth is not going to be here forever, and we are none of us are going to be here forever, and everything that we have done with our lives will be forgotten um, and there will be nobody left to remember it. And that's just a simple fact. And that's not bad. It's not good. It just, it just is. But I think, you know, we are all going to benefit directly if more and more people realize that that is the basic nature of being. And mm -hmm. that in fact, rather than that being a depressing thought, it's ultimately a totally liberating thought. Um, and particularly when you can internalize it and really, really accept it. Like, like impermanence is real. Nothing lasts forever. And it's up to you to be joyful in the knowledge that that is truth. And yeah. more people getting into that mind frame, I think, gives our planet and our species a much higher chance of surviving longer than it will in a world where people are fearful of impermanence. Yeah. And, and how meditation plays an important part in this is because meditation trains you to directly realize that you are that ocean, that you are right. part of this interconnected field of experience and your actions and your choices and your behaviors have a, have a ripple effect across this field of experience. Right. And, and I think to the, you know, a lot of people when they're, first presented with this way of understanding the world, um, immediately react to it um, with fear and, um, and really almost paranoia. Like, I don't want to give up my individual identity. I'm a, I'm a proud, rugged individualist, you know? 
Um, that's the worst mm. thing that you could possibly present to me. The idea that my, my ego is more of a problem than a boon to my existence, you know? And, and yet, you know, the deeper one delves into these things, um, you know, relinquishing um, the, the kind of narcissistic side of the ego um, for a more selfless, um, more bodhisattva-like understanding of the world, to me, you know, that's, that is true liberation, you know? It's not the fact mm. that I am totally free to do whatever the hell I want with my one life, you know? That's not actually free. That's actually quite bound. <laughs> um, and it's letting go of these things and it's transcending these things. Um, even transcending one's nationality, even in, in the more physical realm, you know, or whatever it is that, you know, is used to identify you or separate you from everyone else. Tr being able to let those go and transcend them, um, that to me is the path to ultimate true freedom, you know, not yeah. being willing to die for a country, you know, or fight wars against another people because they believe in a different religion or whatever it may be. Um, that's not the path to liberation, you know. Um, path to liberation is being able to transcend things and let go of things and embrace everything as the one thing that it that it is. Yeah, you you start to realize that everything is just in a different expression of you. So, uh, for example, you can think of countries with neighboring wars. Like I'm I'm part Israeli. And mm -hmm. it, there's obviously a bit of conflict in, in that region. Um, but when you start to realize that everyone is just a different expression of you. And so if I cause someone pain on the other side of the border, ultimately like that has a ripple effect and that will cause me pain and my family pain. Right. And that, that includes people, but it includes the ecology as well. And shamanic cultures really understood this where – uh, for example, Native American, uh, some Native American tribes talk about how they, they they saw trees and and animals as being part of their family, and they knew if they cut down too many trees, that would have a detrimental effect on the environment, and as a consequence, they might not be able to hunt as many animals, or or it would change the the conditions, which would um, have an impact on their tribe. Absolutely. And so it's it's knowing that yeah, it's knowing the cycle of cause and effect act through uh, as a from your actions and behaviors and, and knowing that and then uh and then choosing to operate from a place where you do as little harm as possible to everything and everyone around you it doesn't mean you take mm. a passive approach but it means that you're more mindful with how you walk on this planet Absolutely. And it, you know, it's important to recall that, um, you know, indigenous peoples across the world, uh, there's hundreds of millions of them, um, were essentially called savages or barbarians, you know, by the colonizing Western nations who have been colonizing all corners of the planet for the last 400 years, you know, whether it was Great Britain or Holland or Belgium or the United States or Australia or any of the others, um, Israel, um, mm -hmm. you know, the one, the countries that have, that see it as their own God given right to colonize other people and occupy them, um, always have to debase and degrade the people whose lands they are stealing. Mm 
and taking and turn them into savages or barbarians or whatever negative term they would like to use against that perceived other. When in fact, that perceived other, the indigenous people that may have existed in whatever area we're talking about for thousands and thousands of years, are vessels of immense wisdom and immense understanding and immense immensely close relationships with the land itself and, and nature more broadly. And, and things we can learn from them are just countless. And yet we have debased yeah. them and degraded them and oppressed them and killed them and brutalized them and, and, and uh, given diseases to them that didn't exist before. And the list goes on. And that's another thing, you know, that we need to also realize in this, uh, in this quest for, you know, yeah. a more unified world that, you know, those days have to be finished. Those days are behind us. Yeah. No more colonialism, please. Yeah. These cultures had a sensitivity to life that has been lost uh, as we've become more urbanized and more cosmopolitan. But that sensitivity uh, deeply connects you with every everything and everyone around you. And I think part of the meditation path is cultivating that sensitivity again, remembering that sensitivity again. Um, so you can feel it. So you can feel that connection more deeply. And you did a, a retreat um, or an event not that long ago involving a sweat lodge, I believe. How'd that go? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, I went to a sweat lodge. Uh, I won't say too much about the details mm -hmm. of where it was, but um, my yes. experience—it's essentially going into like a Native American sauna, mm -hmm. and you go there to—it's a semicircle that's covered in mats. Um, it's on the earth, and you heat up uh, volcanic rocks in a fire, and take those rocks and put them into the center of the. Well, it kind of looks like an igloo in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, put them in the middle and then pour water on them. There's four rounds of this where you bring rocks into the middle and then you sit in the sweat lodge, cover it up. So it's pitch black and it's considered to be uh, the womb. You're in, you're in the womb mm. and you, you pray, you pray using uh, uh, ancient uh, traditional languages of uh, these, these peoples, which I have a lot of honor and respect for and just want to acknowledge uh, the elders of these, of these traditions. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you pray, you pray for yourself, you pray for the earth, you pray for your family. Um, and there's a, there's a drum beat that goes and you, you sing songs and pray along with this drum beat. And they've been doing this. Uh, I, I, I'm no, I'm no specialist in them. I'm, no, I'm no master. I've tasted it a few, I've tried this a few times, but my understanding is that, this has been going on for thousands and thousands of years as a way to purify the mind and body. Mm -hmm. And because when you when you're in there, you're sweating profusely, and you sweat, and then you you do you do these prayers and sing these songs, and you're purifying the body and purifying the mind at the same time. And it's a really potent and powerful experience to do that amongst a community of people. It really trains you to really like firstly stabilize, so not to react to the heat, but also to really connect more deeply with, with the earth, with mother earth that we have here. How long are you in the, in the heat for? Is it hours, <laughs> days? <laughs> depends, depends on who's running the lodge. 
Uh, sometimes it can be two hours and sometimes it can be about three hours. Right. Uh, and can you leave yeah, early if you're, if you're suffering? Um, uh, it's recommended that you don't, but uh, there some people do, some people don't. There aren't really uh, uh, strict rules. As there, there are rules about it, but if you've got kids, then you can go out early. If you've got like family, you can go out early. Um, but generally, they encourage people to stay there for the four full rounds. Um, they open up the door in between rounds, so you can get some fresh air in. Mm-hmm. But um, generally, they encourage people to stay there the whole time, and you're sitting on the earth the whole time. Amazing. Yeah. I've done a few of those things too over the years. Yeah. yeah, And everyone's sitting side by side, um, tucked up together in, in the, in the little lodge. Yeah. It's a bit different than a Vipassana meditation retreat, but it's, it's still intense. (laughs) Yeah. It's very Uh, intense. Yeah. These, these cultures had different ways of trying to stabilize the mind. I think this is one of their techniques for doing that from, from my, my interpretation from the experience. Is that uh, you, it trains you not to react to the hate um, and not to react to the discomfort in the body. And over over time, you you really you're not bothered by it anymore. I mean, it still gets very very hot, <laughs> but um, it doesn't bother you as much anymore. And so, how does that translate into my waking life? Well, I realized I'm less less reactive to cold weather. I'm less mm-hmm. reactive to hot weather unless compared to what I was several years ago where if it was 15 degrees outside of Melbourne, I'd be running up. But these days, I'm very, very comfortable in it. So I think it's really training me to you know, not not worry so much about the external conditions and how they affect me. Right. Does that mean all those Aussie guys uh, who wear shorts and thongs when it's like six degrees outside or have been done sweat lodges? <laughs> <sighs> I don't think so. <laughs> They've been doing something, yeah, because that's still like, you know, I obviously haven't lived in this country forever, but every time in the middle of winter when I go out and see guys, like li- it's literally three degrees, four degrees outside, and they're wearing thongs and shorts and a T-shirt. And you just go, guys, you do not live in the tropics. Come on, you know. I think there's a misnomer like in the in the collective consciousness of people that live in the colder parts of Australia that the entire country's like, you know, um, Queensland all the time, but it ain't, it definitely ain't. Yeah. So, um, any, um, that this has been a really great, um, session and, um, any other final words on, um, on meditation that we can, uh, give to the listeners in terms of inspiring them maybe to try it out or if they're already trying it out to keep going and, and, uh, anything else that they can, uh, maybe learn about your own, uh, Activities in this regard? Mm. Yeah, one thing's coming to me is that, uh, I kind of touched on this before, it's that the quality of your mind largely determines the quality of your life. So um, uh, the way I teach is that it's, uh, it's to teach people to enhance their awareness, to improve the quality of their mind so they can improve the quality of their life. And so they can ultimately be of greater service to everyone uh, to the lives of those of the people they interact with, um, and it all starts with really taking a seat, uh, learning something new, and uh, learning a new technique, which in turn makes it helps you learn something new about yourself. Um, right. And right. I, I teach I teach uh, classes, workshops, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going through a, a series of uh, workshops at the moment where I'm going through the, diff- the various layers of the mind, starting with the layer of thoughts, so understanding and organizing your thoughts. And then the next layer is understanding and organizing your emotions. The third layer is understanding and organizing the self, uh, the structures of the self. The fourth layer is understanding and organizing around compassion and interconnectedness. And the fifth layer is understanding and organizing around the transpersonal or, or, or pure awareness itself. And each each layer is designed so you can become more metacognitively aware, train your metacognitive awareness to become more aware of each layer of experience and and how it affects your mind and body, how your thoughts affect you, how your emotions affect you, and how how the layer of the self affects you, and then how and then how you relate with other people. Um, and all these layers overlap and they're interconnected, but I'm breaking it down to to really help people cultivate that self-awareness uh, to learn a bit more about who they are and, um, and more about their internal world. I'm just offering these tools and techniques and ultimately all, all they got to do is just practice. Like everyone has the awareness within them to, to learn about themselves. I'm just providing the guidance. Um, and so I've, I've been offering workshops over the last couple of weeks and I'll continue to do so. And also offer one-to-one meditation mentoring for people who are interested. Excellent. Um, Excellent. So how do people, yeah, uh, how do people find you online? So uh, I have a website. It's, it's my name, A.L. Lang. So www.aleyalang.com. Mm-hmm. And you can find me there, and I offer a free forty-five minute introductory session to see if uh, what your needs are, or what people's needs are, and uh, what they hope to uh, get in order to progress along their meditation path. Um, and then we can work out whether it's a good fit. Um, and yeah, I think like something that's really changed my life is finding a high quality teacher. Uh, my teacher is Dan Brown, who's is terrific but not everyone can get access to him he's he's over in america and so uh finding finding a teacher whether it's me or someone else really makes a big difference in your practice i can speak from my own experience where it's profoundly changed my life to have someone who can give me precise instructions and guidance and and my intention is really just to just to serve and just to support people on their own meditation journey. So people are interested, then feel free to book in a free 45-minute introductory session That's so we can great. have a conversation. That's fantastic. Well, yeah, I would encourage everybody to do that. You know, contact um, IL directly and see um, how he can assist you in your own meditative journey. So thanks so much, Al, today for this really cool discussion. And um, maybe we'll do it again someday. Um, hopefully we can and uh, continue to enjoy lockdown for another few weeks and hope that cases go down to zero here. I don't know if they ever will, but we'll hope. And any final thoughts before we say sayonara? Um, oh, just thank you. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's good fun. It's good fun having a chat. And... Uh, yeah, I hope this. I hope everyone who hears this receives it well and with love. And yeah, I hope everyone out there is well and looking after each other. Right on. Well, thanks again, Ayal. And um, with that, we conclude episode thirty-two of Jointly Venturing. Um, episode thirty-three will be coming soon, as will thirty-four, thirty-five, and thirty-six. They're all lined up and ready to go. So, hope you enjoyed today. 
learned a thing or two about um, the virtues of meditation. Um, and if you have any questions or concerns, contact us at onenessworld at info at onenessworld.org. And if you want to contact I.L. Lang directly, you can do so on his website, which is www.eyallang.com. So thanks again, everybody. We'll see you soon. Hang in there and peace and love. Bye for now. <laughs>